What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly, weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Patrick, <laughs> joined by my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, it's Monday. We're getting through it. How you doing, man? Doing good. Uh, doing good, yes. Things are uh, things are happening. Things are happening. COVID yeah. is dead, minus the uh, <laughs> highly transmittable Delta variant. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, please just get vaccinated. Um, don't don't think too much about it. The micro trips aren't that bad. I promise. You already got um, a micro trip. It's called your phone. Yeah. Just put exactly. it inside. At this point, what's the difference? <laughs> um. Anyways, we uh we're saying things are happening because I mean we're we're reviewing quite a few things. We have TV, music, and a big time movie, possible Oscar contender, first like real summer movie, I'd say. That's really it's hitting theaters. Um, so I'm excited to get into this. And why don't we start today with Japanese Breakfast? Dave, a band that uh, we haven't talked about in the pod, but I think we've both been aware of, uh, known that they're out there in the band, um, which is headed by a Korean author and uh, musician, obviously, um, Michelle Zahner. And she's really the face of, of Japanese breakfast, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, I, we, I don't know how much we've even like talked about it just in our own conversations, but Soft Sounds from Another Planet, her last release in 2017, gained quite a bit of critical acclaim. You know, I think people felt like, okay, this is a band we're tuning into. Um, Michelle seemed like a really exciting creator. Did you feel like their newest album, Dead Oceans, just released this past Friday, did it feel like this kind of continues that upward trend for Japanese Breakfast? Yeah, uh, the third album, Jubilee. The funny thing about all like the talk about it is that everyone's like, is this Japanese Breakfast like pushing to pop? And it's like, I don't know about all that, but it's quite pleasant listen i enjoyed the album uh i understand why it would be appealing but i don't think this music on its face is like something that's like in any rush to like cross over you know hmm. like I, I thought that was kind of funny to see like that like i don't know rhetoric going around about the album like kind of like putting on like new expectations for the act but the music itself i think is is pretty good yeah, you know, that thought about it, like moving into pop, I think you can hear some of these songs feeling like they are a move towards pop. You know, I think especially early on, a song like Be Sweet is like that disco pop jam that you hear um, from people like Dua Lipa. You know, obviously mm-hmm. not to Dua Lipa's level, but in that similar vein, it has a little bit of that like dancing queen type vibe to it at times. Um, but I think especially in the second half, uh, you know, right around the middle of the album, this is where it kind of sinks away from that poppy sound to me. And it doesn't feel as palatable as most of the you know the pop albums we talk about are. And I'm not saying that in terms of it being a bad listen. I found the whole thing really enjoyable, but, you know, kind of like right around like posing in bondage or sit i kind of started to feel like okay this is where that like indie like uh, aim 
that comparison might come into effect for me. You know, I think you can hear a lot of that influence uh, throughout. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you enjoyed the listen, though. What were the the tracks or what about it really stood out to you? You know, I think the vocals are just really pleasant. It's like softly spoken, but it's, it's good singing. But I was most struck with the uh, just the instrumental in, in, instrumental arrangements, specifically in the beginning of the album, which I guess does lean more poppy. Uh, the first track, Pabrika, the horns really stand mm. out. And then again on Slide Tackle, you have the horns really standing out, but also a really sticky, like high tempo uh, drum line as well. So I, I think that's that's really what would stuck around for me was this just the instruments. Yeah, it was a really, uh, especially the first half, I found to be really upbeat and just uh, a fun album. Um, and I think the ones you highlighted, um, Slide Tackle, I already mentioned Be Sweet. Um, those were probably the two that stood out most for me. But even still, I mean, I, I think this is a nice blend of a lot of what you hear in indie rock, but still kind of putting their own twist on it. Like I was trying to find like a a perfect comparison and i kept coming up to like some of the acts we've been talking about in recent indie past mitski um you know i just mentioned Haim, and none of them really felt like they really were exactly the same i think that's why japanese breakfast is you know exciting because they're not just a replica of another band they really have their own sound and something they're going for so i appreciate that i appreciate michelle's vision um we'll be throwing uh, at least one of these tracks onto our Nostalgia Best of 2020 playlist. So check that out. But Dave, I think, you know, it's weird to start off with Japanese Breakfast today because we have maybe two of the biggest rap albums of the year to talk about today. Um, and we're going to start with Polo G, who um, I think this is probably the best album we're going to talk about today. Um, and that's not to say that the other album is bad necessarily, but that. I think Polo G as an artist is just uh, uh, on the precipice of superstardom. Really, If he's not there already, he's on that trajectory. This album, um, Hall of Fame, is projected to be the number one album in the, the selling album in the country after this mm -hmm. weekend. Um, and going up against someone like Migos, uh, you know, who have an established and, and very anticipated album coming out, um, just says a lot about him and Though I, I think this album is a little bloated and there's some certainly some filler tracks. I think there's still a lot to like on Hall of Fame. How did you feel after this listen? Yeah, no, I've just been a big fan of Apology. Like a lot of people the past few years, this is his third album in three years. But I, I think there's just been steady stepping stones, steady progress made as a talent. And at this point, like you said, He's seeing that success. This is projected to beat out Migos for the number one album by like 30, 40,000 units, a pretty sizable, uh, you know, lead there. And it's also doubling his first week sales from just last year. And I think the big reason it would be, would be that Rap Star, one of the lead singles, mm -hmm. kind of surprisingly went number one and actually yeah. stayed number one for two weeks, which is he, he's the it's only male, male soloist to do that this year. Like, I don't think anyone would have picked that no matter how high you were on Polo G. And we talked about this last year when it's out on the goat and album I really loved. I had wishing for a hero on my top 10 songs of 2020, but Polo G's, I think his strength is just that he makes really palatable, accessible music 
which explains why. So I'm like rap star, which I think is fine, but I still think there was like six or seven songs on last year's The Goat that are better than Rap Star. But the rap rap star is so accessible, so palatable, but still like has that rap DNA. Mm-hmm. Like he kind of dabbles in the softer melodic stuff, but he doesn't fully commit to singing the way someone like Rod Wave or Little TJ does. He really threads the needle, and I think uh, pleasing to all people kind of way. That a song that makes a song like Rap Star succeed, and this album, like you said, twenty tracks, it's too many tracks. Um, even even the Goat last year had too many tracks, but there's still a lot of really good moments. And I think Polo G is just a rapper that people should be investing, in. he's clearly the most exciting uh, person in Chicago right now. Apologies, mm. little Dirk, but Polo G clearly is just operating at the highest level these days. We, we'd love chance to get back to this point. We'll see what happens with that follow up to the big day but for now it's clearly polo g's uh title to lose yeah and you know i think it, so i was telling you before we started i listened to this twice through um and the second time i will say i was a little bit more choppy like kind of jumping around or skipping through um and i found myself i think when i was skipping through feeling like some of the songs were a little bit samey and i think when you're when you have this many tracks it's kind of hard to not have some of the tracks start to feel uh a bit similar or at least have the having the same dna but certain ones really stood out to me and actually one of the songs that i think stood out to me most and made me most excited for polo g as an artist and not just being an artist who was very popular but also really really strong artist is the last track bloody canvas because i felt like not only does that kind of bring a a little bit different of apology i mean i think he always tries to go for a little bit of the storytelling but that one really feels like he's like bringing this energy that's over this like toned down piano driven beat and it's just him like it's just his total confidence and bravado like driving that track the production kind of picks up around the second half and you get some more like heavy uh, drums coming in but really i feel like that's just him like carrying that totally by what he's saying and what how he sang it and i felt like that was a really exciting track for me on it um any thoughts on bloody canvas did that one stand out to you at all yeah well i think lyrically it it definitely points to you know his roots in chicago drill something that Mm -hmm. came up before he was really a rapper but definitely shaped uh his thing he's always paid a lot of uh homage to g herbo who's featured on this album you know for that same kind of reason but yeah i mean a song like that a song like wishing for a hero from last year Mm -hmm. uh his storytelling ability, I think, has been proven at this point, you know, and that's been a hallmark of drill music. And I think because Polo G sticks to more, uh, like I said, palatable, uh, accessible uh, vocal delivery, it's an even a more accessible version of that kind of grimness that we associate with drill lyrics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, clearly a highlight. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I think you really described that really well. And even the track before it with Pop Smoke and 5 Year 4 and Clueless, I thought that was another standout for me. And, um, you know, we talk about these posthumous features and tracks, and sometimes they can not really come out that great or sound a bit overproduced. But this one sounds pretty authentic, I thought, and yeah. just makes you really like really sad for what could have been with pop you know it's totally crazy because all three of them together on this track sound awesome 
Yeah, so that song actually had leaked uh, under the name Woo Shit, which is, you know, obviously a refrain. The song mm-hmm. Woo Shit had leaked before the pop posthumous album had come out. I, a lot of you, including myself, were really hoping we would get that on that album or the deluxe version of that album uh, just so that it would be uh, more widely available to everyone. Of course, uh, many people, perhaps myself, already have that song available to them, but now it's available to everyone in a more legal manner. And new name, Clueless. But yeah, happy, happy to hear that song. Like I, I um, didn't even like notice it like on the track list because again, there's 20 damn songs on this album. <laughs> but like, yeah, I should have known. Like, oh wait, Polo Pop and Five Yo. I wonder if that's Wuxia. Then I listened to it and I immediately perked up. I'm like, oh fuck yeah, here it is. Let's go. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that that definitely feels like like an authentic, uh, you know, posthumous cut, right? Like it's it's a full fledged uh, pop feature for sure. Um, what other tracks out of these other 18 ones stood out to you and which ones maybe weren't? Yeah, for you? I, I liked Go Part 1 with G Herbo. Um, just th- that first verse from Polo, I think, is just like hard as fuck. Like he has like some really great lines, like the Killicam reference. Mm-hmm. I love that one. I really liked uh, Epidemic, the f- intro track, yeah. Painting Pictures. Um, boom, like the, the vocal inflection on the, on the hook for Boom, where it's like double vocals. Like to like kind of like accentuate uh, Polo being like boom, you know, it's like doubled up. Just like mm-hmm. a simple touch, but like I really like that. Um, I thought Zoo Freestyle was pretty good. Party Life was actually kind of cool too because I think to Baby, which is an interesting parallel because he is so popular and so mainstream, but he also, I think he has a more gruff delivery than Polo mm-hmm. G, even though they both are not totally. afraid mind it was kind of cool to see that contrast on the same song i'm not sure if that's their first collab it kind of feels like it was um it's funny the party life i'm oh, sorry before you go on uh oh, the baby just comes in and he's so strong on that track it mm-hmm. almost like it, like i was listening to it in the background doing work today and i it like really perked up and caught my attention just how strong he is on that but i agree they have a nice contrast i think makes that right. a stand out for sure sorry go ahead we're, we're, you know we're uh, funny enough I'm actually pretty down on like all the singles on this album. Like I think again, I think Rap Star is totally okay. Like the hook, um, like the in a minute part, like I guess it's pretty catchy, mm-hmm. but like it's okay. And then Gang Gang Lil Wayne and uh GNF, okay, okay, okay. Like I think those songs are like all totally totally average. And it's just funny to actually see uh all these album cuts we've been mentioning clearly um stick around, at least for us, a lot more. Um but yeah, I, I think that's the that's the deal with Polo G at this point is that he is really talented and he can make a lot of good songs. And yeah, he hasn't made a classic album yet. He he's still honing in on that. But like, if you're betting on like a rapper under twenty five to make like mm-hmm. a Pantheon album, he has to be towards the top of the list at this point, just because he's demonstrated a lot of great qualities already. Three albums in. Yeah, I mean, who even else would be in that conversation at this point? Yeah, in terms of young guys, I don't know. Yeah. I like, and there's tons of young guys I like, but I don't think of them the same way, which yeah. is totally fine. It's not a knock on any of those other rappers, but I, I think there's just there seems to be an ambition to Polo G that we're seeing manifest again. Like you're sampling the way it is on your right. second album and also nailing it. You yeah. know, like a lot of people aren't going to do that. No, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an exciting artist for you know, undoubtedly. And I think even though um, at times I felt like this was, you know, a bit samey and a little bloated, I think uh, 
get this much quality out of it is a really good sign. And it's also, I think, good that he we like some of the tracks that um, he kind of is just carrying on his own. And then also he can collab and kind of work with people really well. It's really good base for him. So check out Hall of Fame and also skirt skirt. I got the Migos culture three. Um, I think they're only doing three cultures, right? So this is the uh, the end of the trilogy for them. I believe, I believe that's what they've been saying. Yes, they've been hyping it up as a trilogy. The conclusion. Also, the, their first album as a trio since Culture 2 way back in early 2018. So it, it's been quite a minute. Not that uh, the Migos as soloists haven't been around. Of course, we got all three of their debut solo albums between now and then. But it's been a minute for Migos as a group to release more than just an appearance here and there. And I think a lot of people were uh, anticipating this. But at the same time, I saw a lot of chatter about like perhaps a lack of hype for this Migos album. But I wouldn't I mean, they're still doing over 100,000. Like it's not like Migos isn't. They're eating fine. They're, they're good. They're still very <laughs> successful uh, guys. But I think this actually kind of snowballed into a, a, a kind of more macro conversation about how Migos have become almost elder statesmen in rap, especially uh, Atlanta rap, which is really funny because uh, Quavo has just turned 30. It's not like these guys are yeah. old. Um, I believe Takeoff is like 26. They're, they're not old at all, but they've been around for about six, seven years in terms of super mainstream notoriety at this point. And it's kind of ancient history. Funny, funny, funny thing about how like in between Culture 2 and now, you've had so many other artists that operate in similar circles completely blossom, right? Megan Thee Stallion, Roddy Rich, DaBaby, NBA Youngboy. There's been a little baby, of course, their label mate. Like a lot, a lot's happened between Culture 2 and now. Yeah, you know what I was thinking about just like the their rise, right? And it kind of coincided with the podcast in a way when, when we really started doing this. Um, I think about the Donald Glover moment, you know, when he wins at the uh, Golden Globes for Atlanta and he shouts out Migos because he said Bad and Bougie, just like the best song ever. And <laughs> it's it's just like so funny because they were such a meteoric rise. It was everywhere at that point. And um a million you know, then, Quavo features for like a good 18 months. Literally every, I felt like every rap album you heard Quavo pop up. And it, it's just kind of interesting because after Culture 2, obviously they lost a lot of momentum, pretty critically panned, uh, kind of just like a unmemorable album, which is one of the, probably the worst things that you can say. And it's right. like, to go from being maybe the biggest rap group in the country for two years to falling off and you know then not even making an album for three years it's just a strange and quick ride for them but and then it does feel like they've lived a couple lifetimes in this you know five or six year stretch so coming into culture three i guess i would say i wasn't necessarily like super excited about the album but i was interested to see if they could regain their footing um and i think i left feeling like okay this is moving back in the right direction but still obviously did not reach the highs of cult the culture one to me yeah how, how about you yeah totally i mean looking back at culture two which I, I i i just checked this there actually are four platinum hits on culture two uh stir fry narcos walk it like i talk it and uh motorsport so like it's mm. stuff stuck around but 
like put the commercial stuff aside i think creatively it was a disappointing album because culture one as you said was such a breath of fresh air in terms of a mainstream atlanta album but also felt like a level up for Migos, who had been around a while. Like they had a lot of tapes. The YRN era is very storied and very popular with people that were, you know, up on it at the time. And, you know, I mean, Versace remix with Drake, which mm. I think really catapulted them. That was 2015, I think, or 20, no, 2014. Like that, that was a while ago. Oh, and yep. then several years before Culture One. And like you said, to have Culture Two come out basically a year to the day after the complete success of the first Culture and not not stick around as an album uh was 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 a bummer right and like i remember we were really hyped for uh, ray strummer's strum life three to follow it was another album that uh was disappointing but at least had more merits because of like the triple disc this you know the the, the delineations mm-hmm. of the solo and the group album that it was yeah and for migos it was just like I, they just felt like 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 aimless for a while right and i think quavo um, the features stopped feeling special. Yeah. People started being much more interested in offsets features, which were still hitting. We got those three solo albums. All have their merits. I think the Quavo one's the worst. Uh, the takeoff one's probably the best. Coming into this, you know, and randomly, right? You have that Pure Water song, the DJ Mustard song, which yeah. went four times platinum, which is just Amigo's song, right? Like the takeoff so, uh, thing is mm-hmm. like iconic at this point, right? So like when I heard Pure Water, I was like, you know what? People are still ready for a good Migos song. There's no denying mm-hmm. this. And I, I just think maybe they just don't feel as fresh anymore. Like I said, a lot of things have happened. But to get yeah, this, yeah. you know, it, it's um, it's definitely better than Culture 2. It has a lot mm-hmm. of the same sins, though. You know, I would have thought they would have moved past the packing the uh, track list from the jump. Like, you know what? You want to throw all this shit on the fucking deluxe? Whatever. Everyone else is doing it. But to like pack the original track list again because like when they did it for culture 2 that was when that was really starting the whole like gaming streams thing but to see him do it now i, I was kind of frustrated because i think the, the bones of a great album or a great ep are so evident in culture 3 but they just don't let you have that chance because it's just so bloated mm-hmm. yeah it's it, just, just to kind of circle back to one of the things you're talking about in terms of like like the freshness that they brought the way that they like the interplay that they had and the this the overall energy that they brought to the first album culture it was just so unique something people had never really heard in terms of like the way that they ad-libbed off each other and it felt so genuine almost just like you were kind of in the studio with them like bobbing around what flow was really new to a lot of people at that time and now i feel like we get a lot of people who not necessarily steal from them, but have definitely borrowed, like throwing the ad libs in more often, kind of filling in that space all the time. And so while it was really new and exciting, then that vibe, it doesn't feel as fresh anymore. And it's just kind of like, if they're a group where you're like, I just want to hang around this vibe all the time and you're getting that vibe everywhere else, then it really comes down to what's the quality of the raps. And I think we've seen, you know, while some of them, you know, take off and offset specifically have kind of kept their game at least on par, you know, over the last couple of years, Quavo seems to have fallen off or maybe been not as interested. He's obviously had some pretty public uh, stuff going on in his personal life. So, um, you know, you never know like where their heads at with that. But yeah, I agree. I, I think I, I felt like 
this was very similar to the last album, um, Culture 2, but I do feel like this is a little bit better. Um, and uh, there were quite a few tracks that I was like, okay, um, uh, I can I can get with this. And I think Jane, the Birkin song, is probably the biggest standout for me. I, f- I thought that it's just like a total like made for the club song. Um, feels like something that could have been off like Culture 1. Um, yeah. And that was for sure one that stood out to me but it seems like maybe you didn't feel that way interesting now in general i'm i'm, I'm much uh more down on the second half of the album hmm. and i'd actually noted jane I, that was when like one of the repetitive hooks started to get to me there's plenty of like lazy hmm. hooks on culture three but the jane one i was like oh man this is hurt i, I gotta give it another listen now um I, I think what it is about that is you can just hear that like being played in the club and like people sure. like singing that hook whereas like some of the other repetitive hooks i wasn't sure if they could be hitting in that same yeah. way but um you like the first half more which songs stood out to you so it's not the lead single but it's the lead single for like the album cycle in proper straightening straightening which has kind of a weak hook on itself i really love the verse it's really that first verse from quavo which was shared as a snippet to get people excited for the album and definitely got me excited because quavo sounded really clear and refreshed and also lyrically what he's getting at is how like you know people act like the game got vacant or game went vacant he's like like you you're sleeping on us now we're barely gone like fuck off I kind of love that attitude. It's like it's it's like a, they were putting a chip back on their shoulder, and then you saw Trey Young, you know, using using that uh those lyrics as a caption and stuff. I I think Straighten is going to stick around. I like that one a lot. And then backing up the first track, Avalanche, which really doesn't have a hook at all. I believe they did this on Fallon. That one is just like a textbook example of the Migos chemistry, right? They all mm-hmm. just take turns doing a verse. When they're not doing the verse, they're doing the ad libs for the other guy, right? It's, yep. it, it's a classic like Migos song. And then having our way, uh, there's a you know a storied history between Migos and Drake, of course, starting with the Versace remix. And I didn't love uh, Walk It Like I Talk It, but this one I really love for Drake because I thought that was a really inspired Drake flow. And it was some of the lines I thought were a little corny, but I, I think mm-hmm. the one thing I'll say is we're talking about. Drake just totally stealing the second song on this yeah. album. Like it's right. it's totally a Drake song. It almost could have been off one of his albums that you just gave it to. It's a good point. Yeah, the first ninety seconds are all Drake for the most part. Like <laughs> crazy. But I just I, I really when I first heard him go and like the third me go I take. I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is really good. <laughs> that was <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was really good. So Avalanche having our way and straightening, and then type shit which with Cardi B and. It's a good Cardi Cardi feature is what you expect from Cardi, but I actually think it's more special for Takeoff's performance, which mm. is really, really hot, but also brings you back to the YRN era where they're like really speaking from their chest and Quavo comes in just a little bit before Cardi and like they, they just sound so young and like old, old school Migos for me mm. there. So those first four tracks I thought were, were awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Avalanche really stood out and having our way for the Drake of it all really stood out to me as well. I thought the type shit was pretty good. Um, you know, I I think hearing Cardi almost on any track always perks me up a little bit. But I agree. I think I think it starts off really hot. You know, I'm wondering where the turning point is for you, because mm-hmm. there's one track that the first time I listened to it, I was like, 
oh, I actually really like this. Where they, uh, it's vaccine, where they interpolated yes, that's March. That's exactly the turning point. Yes, they, so they, they took March from the Nutcracker and <laughs> used that as the B. And then they just like, you know, obviously put the, mm-hmm. the rap uh, fine tunings on it, uh, modern sound. And the first time I listened to it, I was like, oh, this is kind of a fun song. And then I was like, actually, this, I don't know about this song so much. And that's kind of when it. things started to turn. For me, it's just the Quavo performance on the hook. Uh, we get money in quarantine. It just gives me old school Quavo vibes. That's why I liked it. But yeah, after I, that, like you, you have forgettable moments. Future, Bieber, Juice World, Pop Smoke, uh, mm-hmm. ending off with Need It, which was a song already released in summer 2020. Not a lot of uh, things stood out to me after Vaccine. You know, Jane. But other than that, like that's where the blue started to rear its ugly head for me. But this leads me to listen to the beginning again, because I think there's a lot of, a lot of nice highlights. Yeah. yeah I, I thought antisocial juice world, even though um, I think some of the mixing on that isn't great. Like the vocals mm-hmm. between the Migos and then juice world is so uh, off. I think they could have used a little more time on that one. I did. I did give them a little bit of credit because I think when I think about Migos, I totally just want to hear them doing bangers all the time. And the fact that they still try to bring in some more like emotional, like personal songs, I'm like, okay, like yeah. they're, they're at least trying to be like a real artist, not just giving us radio fodder all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think Quavo had some nice lines about uh pop smoke and how I wish yeah. he could have done more. Cause they had collabed uh, in life mm-hmm. with Bob. So uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to do like, Number two behind Polo G. Funny enough, Polo's featured on this. I don't think that that matters all that much. That's fine. I, I just you want to you want to see the. We've already acknowledged that the album's too long, so you just want to see a lot of those songs stick around. I want to see Migos, you know, keep it going. You know, it seems like Offset and Cardi B are uh, back on good terms. Obviously, Cardi's featured on this. They seem to have reconciled, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Quavo, the sweetie thing, didn't uh, go well at the end there, and. There was a rape allegation against Takeoff last year, civil mm-hmm. suit. We'll see what happens with that. But, you know, I just hope uh, they can keep the momentum going because I think uh, Atlanta rap is better when these guys are at the top because they, they still have a, a chemistry that's hard to replace, you know? Yeah. So I, I'd rather have it than not have it, you know? I know. I'm wondering if, if they want to get something else that's not, you know, a culture part of the culture trilogy. I wonder if to them it would feel like a fresh start in some way. Um, I also, you know, we got those solo albums from them. I'm really hoping that they make another Migos album before they branch off again. Cause I feel like they're starting to capture something again. And I'd like them to keep exploring that personally. Yeah. But absolutely. I know that they're going to do what they want to do. And you know who else will do what they, what he wants to do? That's Tom Hiddleston as Loki, the God of mischief. On Disney Plus, the new uh, Loki TV series dropped, and out of all the, the Disney Plus uh, Marvel TV shows, this one had the most viewings for the first episode. Most people watched, which um, I'm not surprised. Loki, obviously, out of the uh, characters that have been used in the story so far, has had the longest run in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. Also you get Tom Hiddleston uh, playing a very fun and interesting character. And this has been billed as a mini series that is really going to expand how you see and understand the 
uh, MCU at this point. So I think there's a lot of hype around this. Are you surprised that this was the most watched uh, premiere? So not to be a buzzkill, but I'm not surprised, but I think it's just math. Like more people are subscribed to Disney Plus today than they were when Falcon premiered or Wanda premiered or Mandalorian season two premiered. You know, like uh, Disney Plus has been making lots of inroads specifically overseas with the hot star, uh, you know, combined unit over in Asia and whatnot. So I think they wouldn't give us this, but the percentage of viewers to total subscribers is the metric we actually would want to see so you can actually have some kind of uh, baseline yeah at the end of the day who cares loki (laughs) is uh, obviously very popular as we expect uh, every mcu show to be at this point but we were in in, hype for it i think a lot of people were hyped for it because that was a really awesome trailer and having seen this first episode uh which it's funny to think about because this is a exposition heavy premiere yet still oddly quite compelling mm-hmm. and i think that's because it's actually getting weird like we talked about yeah. wandavision it's appealing because it's weird and wandavision's weirdness was almost more big picture meta stuff because it was a homage to various generations of old school television and that was really cool right but this and, and Fal- falcon wasn't really weird at all but loki is actually weird right we're just going to be bouncing around time mm-hmm. and you have the guy who's already the god of mischief who fakes his death all the time and now he's going to be hunting himself like this is just going for this is comic ass shit and i think that's going to be really appealing to people yeah and I, th- I think it's important to note um who's helming this and that's michael waldron who uh is going to be directing dr strange in the multiverse of madness which i think we all right. expect to be no, very no, no, similar no, Sam Raimi's directing that. Was he? Did he write it or something? Oh, I guess he's working on it. Um, yeah, let me see what his credit is. He's a, oh yeah, he's a writer for it, but he's yeah, not a okay. producer for it. Um, and he's also worked on Rick and Morty. Um, and this is just a person who is, I think, worked on shows that push the way that we understand, uh, you know, just the way we look at the world. <laughs> you know, Rick and Morty is one of those shows, even though I know it's a cartoon. But we talked about on here really makes you think and um, kind of pushes you to uh, expand your mind a bit. And so as you look at Loki and Owen Wilson uh, traveling around with the TVA, the Time Variance Authority, uh, and, you know, Owen Wilson is really putting the screws to him in this first episode about um, his life and how, you know, his, his time comes to an end and how him grabbing the time stone is now somehow thrown off these different timelines. It, um, it's really compelling. And it's also mixed in with, I think a lot of really funny humor, like the DB Cooper moment I thought was really funny, really clever. Um, and just kind of like that. I think that spoke to the essence of this show and I'm excited for them to explore more and more of the weirdness i'm excited for them to find creative ways to get out of situations you know like loki taking that uh one tva agent and just uh sending her backwards in time like over and over and over in like the span of a second who like the first time anyone gets that power they're gonna do that to somebody it just feels like a little kid playing with a toy in a way so i think there's a lot of like really funny moments uh and, and levity mixed in with this show that I think with Hiddleston playing the 
you know, title role, obviously, can really bring some weight. You know, that moment when he sees himself die, he sees um, how Thanos kills him in Infinity War. You really see him like kind of start to crumble and then that anger like come to the surface. And I was like, oh, this is why you get someone like Tom Hiddleston to, you know, star in these shows. Cause while he's incredibly charming and he he's able to just like carry scenes and be funny, those moments when he can also sink into the emotional side of the characters, why Loki is such a great character in this universe and why people want to see him do more. Um talk to me about some of the moments or or the parts of the first episode that really stood out to you. Yeah, well, I think through the through now three shows with MCU on Disney Plus, we can't help but notice the larger table setting the shows have been doing for the MCU movies and the storylines to come. And sometimes that feels like that gets in the way of the season of TV actually being compelling as its own entity. I think it's pretty clear, as you mentioned, Michael Waldron writing mm-hmm. one of the writers on Doctor Strange's Multiverse of Madness. It's pretty clear that Loki's purpose is to establish and normalize the existence of multiverses, multiple timelines, resetting time, all that for the sake of the MCU doing this in a larger fashion in Doctor Strange too. Pretty easy to see this. But because the whole presence of extra timelines in the show uh, is there. I actually love it because it removes all the stakes. This, this, this show doesn't actually owe anything to the MCU because nothing that happens on the show is probably going to matter at all because it's literally, what is it? The, uh, the variant Loki. This is the 2012 mm-hmm. Loki. It's not even the Loki that uh, died, right? It's a different Loki. So nothing matters at all. So when I already accept that nothing matters and nothing is going to be probably that consequential, I think you can now honestly lose yourself to it. And again, let it be weird. We're going to probably get lots of cool settings. Like you mentioned, you got that D.B. Cooper uh, nod, which was really smart and witty. I would expect stuff like that to perhaps continue. Mm -hmm. And I'm just down for it. You know, you you mentioned you mentioned Owen Wilson. uh, Welcome presence for sure. I think he really riffed off of Hiddleston well in that first episode, just bringing a different type of energy because Owen, you know, now in a different stage of his career, but we know what kind of chops he has in terms of uh, being quick on his feet uh, in terms of delivering a line. We also have Gugu Mbatara, who we saw in this premiere. So I think there's just a lot of uh, appealing pieces, but it it doesn't feel like the MCU of it all is going to get in the way. And that's always my biggest sticking point uh, in the early going that we have with the Marvel shows. So feeling good. Yeah, I, I think Owen Wilson is a uh, a nice sidekick to Loki here, um, to Tom Hiddleston. They have just really nice chemistry right off the bat. Um, and I think overall, like you said, uh, the stakes don't feel super intense. Uh, it actually kind of reminds me a bit of Wanda, right, where the beginning of it even though there was like this overarching what's going to happen um i felt a bit like okay like there's they're trying something here let's just like go with whatever direction they're taking us in and not really worry about it and obviously wanda ties things in at the end and brings a little bit more of that weight into it but this feels like one you can really just sit back and enjoy and uh kind of lose yourself in so 
Um, I'm really excited for this. I'm, I'm hoping that we uh, they can that they really are just weird with it. And pretty much every critic who's seen more than the first episode says that after you get through the exposition of the first episode, which wasn't even weighed down that much, in my opinion, by the exposition, um, that they you really get to just kind of like chew on what's happening. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward right. to Wednesday, which also nice w- Wednesday drop. Always appreciate the earlier drops. Yeah, Absolutely. So. It, it's it's a great idea, honestly, I, I would say, because when you think this would perhaps lend people to watch it more at the same time, as oh. opposed to, I mean, that, I think that would actually happen if it was like a fixed time at night, the way HBO mm-hmm. shows are on. But middle of the week probably lends people to focus in on it more than releasing just as the weekend starting. Yeah, I you know? agree. So I, I like to call here. Yeah, and also they have Bad Batch on Fridays right now, so that's why right. uh, yeah. why cannibalize yourself, you know? So yeah, it looks um, like this is a, this is six episode season. This is going to wrap up right after July? Black Widow comes out in July. Mm. So a lot of Marvel, and we know uh, more Marvel shows, more Marvel movies to come. So Marvel is uh, back in our lives, like 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 normal status quo returned. Absolutely, and back in our lives is Betty. The HBO surprise hit from 2019. Wow. Oh, no, 2020. It was last year. It was 2020. Yeah. Jeez. 2019 Jeez. still feels like last year to me, though. I get the feeling. Yeah. I See, I think what we're, uh, I don't associate it with the pandemic watching this show. Mm-hmm. So I to everything before the pandemic is uh, 2019 to me, even if it, uh, I don't know, maybe it did. I think it did come out like in April of last year right? yeah, i think it was may may 2020 it came out something like that it was in the summer uh but it was, they, it was completely shot before the pandemic the first season was obviously that's yeah. not the case with season two right and i, I think that that's actually why i might um probably one why i like the show so much but also um why i don't associate it is when you're in this world you really are in the world of new york city that they show you this skateboard alternative type world and i think in the first season that worked totally to its advantage because you just kind of get lost in these awesome like skateboarding montages you kind of get lost Mm -hmm. in them adventuring from one cool venue to the next running into people parties things in the street or in the park it's just a really fun hang second season obviously um you know covid is just part of their reality you know, it's just something that they're all kind of dealing with in different ways. Although I do have to say, they seem to be a lot more um, laissez-faire with their, uh, you know, social gatherings than um, I was during COVID, mm-hmm. I will say. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, understandable they're teenagers in New York City. It's probably was a very difficult experience to be inside all the time when their whole world was outside their doors. Um, but I, I think... I don't think it's weighed down necessarily by the COVID of it all, but it definitely is present. What what was that like for you to be yeah. sitting with that? Right. Well, I think all the cast is in the early twenties, but either way, it feels authentic that this this larger skating community in New York is a little inconsistent with COVID protocol. Right. It actually feels authentic to yeah. the story. And that's not the case with the production. Obviously, this was shot uh, September through December of twenty twenty to shoot something in New York City at that time you had to be uh extensively uh 
COVID safe and there's some pieces about like the bubbles to cast the you know live together and stuff so seemed like a a labor of love to really want to shoot anything and by all accounts shooting during the pandemic has uh, been terrible uh, in terms of the extra work it requires but it, it does kind of feel like a cool time capsule right to see something not ignoring the pandemic but just kind of going with it for this 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 season mm-hmm. and I mean, I, I think I think it's a really cool idea. But even if it's just kind of in the background on the side, and they're wearing masks, it's going to come up in conversation. If even if that's all it is, it's still more Betty, which means, like you said, it's a great hang. It's in a great setting. It always looks nice. The cool it is watching people that are actually skateboarders skate down the streets of the Lower East Side. It's just an appealing prospect. Skateboarding from what I understand has been getting even more popular due to social media and TikTok and all that. So this feels like a show for that, uh, you know, new phenomenon as well, but it just, you know, it feels like a continuation to season one, which we like so much because you have these, this, you know, this real skating collective playing fictional versions of themselves. They have awesome chemistry. They all feel like unique characters, real characters, and it just feels like a lived in place. And, that's really appealing. Yeah, I, I think um, I think what I was left with from this episode is just how, you know, they're setting up, I think, some of the potential conflicts or driving plot forces for the season. You know, I think you, you see what well, Indigo signing up for, uh, you know, quitting her job because of the customer that wasn't following COVID protocols mm-hmm. and signing up for the uh, sugar sugar papa yeah. website which i thought was seeking cool. arrangements standing yeah yeah um and then um you know you also see like honey bear and, and her relationship and mm-hmm. you know feeling feeling that out feeling uncomfortable certain parts of it um camille trying to become a serious skater who is um you know trying to be sponsored and maybe not feeling totally comfortable with some of those things so you see some of the driving forces of potential conflict but really just come for the hangs right like come for kurt at the end of the episode telling all these dumb skateboard guys how to go and pick up chicks yeah. being the <laughs> love know? guru it's great <laughs> yeah it's perfect it's fantastic um come for just like the skate scenes when you know you see like camille skating around and recording the, that guy and um you know, then him like running off, but like just I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of what I like about the show is it really just like you said, it's lived in. It feels just enjoyable to be with these characters and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's my advice to them: just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, they have it down to a science. And if you want more of it, just go on uh, Rachel Vinberg plays Camille. Go on her Instagram. It's just her posting skate clips in the city all the time because that is literally who she is it's so real (laughs) yeah absolutely um why don't we stay on hbo though move on to the season finale of maybe the biggest surprise of the year to this point hacks um you know this was a show that we were excited for i think we we we're all in on the the gene smart renaissance at this point smartessence but how can you not um, be it's just i'm hit after it yeah, and especially like for our taste, I mean, uh, I mean, just doing uh, Mayor Beast Town, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in Watchmen too, and then yeah. before that, doing um, 
Legion. I mean, mm-hmm. and Fargo season two. Yeah, that's right. And Fargo. I mean, really, like right up our alley um, with all of this. We were looking forward to this show, but this show is maybe in contention for, you know, my top 10 shows of the year at this point, because not only did this show, I think, balance both main characters and their storylines and their development really, really well. Um, and, and I think fairly, like it never felt like we were, I was getting tired of being with one or the other in terms of the characters, but it, the show just had so much heart and it really, I think explored um, themes of like why people make some of the decisions they make, even if it feels like it goes against who they are, like the sacrifices people choose in their lives because of, you know, wanting to meet another need in their life. I felt like it was just really interesting exploration of those things. Well, I, I think the dynamic between Gene Smart and um, Hannah Einbinder was just really phenomenal. And to have Hannah Einbinder, who I haven't seen in a lot of things before Hacks, uh, if I think this is her first real major role, play so well off Gene Smart. I think that says a lot about her and I'm, I'm excited for her career. We'll maybe we'll talk a little bit more about her potential. But what what did you like about the show so much? Yeah, so something that I hadn't explicitly been thinking about, you know, looking back, this was a show that wasn't announced until the pandemic was well underway. So they managed to make this show during the pandemic. Can't tell. Looks awesome still. Mm-hmm. But seeing gene smart i think finally get that that starring role because mm-hmm. like we we just listed off what five signature shows of the past 10 years and i think gene smart at this point especially with hacks now included she's probably in like that like top 10 tv actors of the last 10 years or so like once you get past the obvious people like that, especially that were leads like your Brian Cranston's and your hams and stuff and your Dinklage's. Once you get past the obvious, like really high, heavily awarded people, I feel like Gene uh, Smart is right there just because it's just such an impressive CV. So I, I think it's really awesome that you would see her get rewarded with a star vehicle like this. Again, this is uh, she's an older woman, so that's no guarantee for an older actress uh, to get a shot like this, right? But it's actually a really smart idea, right? Like the, as as the title suggests, just an older comic, very wealthy, but kind of out of creative juice, out of anything left to achieve. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect juxtaposition with a down on their luck uh, young uh, television writer from a different generation. Like it's a great great concept, very simple, but and even the the Las Vegas setting also feels like really smart and well yeah. well handled as well. And, you know, episode to episode, 30 minute comedy, huge plus, but episode to episode is just so pleasurable, right? Because you see, maybe there's a formula in a certain sense. It's like they, the two, our two leads will conflict, but they'll be better together, but they'll still mainly conflict as new conflicts arise. Like it's really simple to see the skeleton in the show, but it's just executed on so well. And I think it, it's it's really funny to see that. The most humorous aspects of the show are outside of uh, the the the, the stand up bits, right? Yeah. And there's actually less stand up as you go into the show because it's actually the least interesting part of the show. 
And to me, that's a good uh, a, a good sign for any comedy. And thankfully, HBO has already renewed this show for a second season. Yeah, you know, it's it's really funny to um, think about like this was this is a show that really is about this you know person who became famous off her stand up, and I think the only real time you get with her beyond maybe like one joke on stage is when she tells off the uh, the guy in the night in the uh, comedy club that time and you know gives him 1.69 million dollars never to perform again right um other than that you don't really see her actually perform on stage but i think the the juxtaposition that you talked about where um ava's character is so ambitious and so career driven and gene smart's deborah is very much just comfortable with where she's at and doesn't really want to push the boundaries because she's like, I keep making money off doing these very safe kind of not really funny, but funny enough type gigs. And that's, you know, kind of also then obviously driven by Marcus, who is her chief operating, um, a chief operating officer, I guess. Um, yeah. Right. Played by Carl Clemens Hopkins. And, you know, he, he brings also another interesting dynamic to the, uh, the three, I guess you, I consider him the third main lead. And um, I think it's just really smartly written. It all really weaves in together really well. And there's a, it's just very satisfying. Like I feel like a lot of other shows would have brought Ava together with her partner by the end. Um, I forgot what it was. It, it wasn't Nina. Nina was the mom. I forgot what her um, former partner um, name was. Shit. But uh, Ruby and they, yeah, Ruby, and they would have they would have had them totally hook up, and it would have totally derailed all the progress Ava made. But to see that character growth felt super satisfying. She's like, ah, you know, I want to be ready for this interview, and even if the interview maybe was something we weren't totally excited for as a viewer, it was still like nice to see Ava. I think not like totally throwing her life away for this person that she was obsessed with. That was kind of like the driving force of things in the beginning, this breakup was like, mm-hmm. Hey, now I need to like get away from LA for a little bit. I'll take this gig. Um, and, and I also think seeing the way that they came together around that special, you know, you see Deborah take that chance, um, not listen to Marcus in the end. Um, this was like a really uh, satisfying payoff, even if obviously it didn't go well. And then that comes to a head in the final episode with Deborah showing up to Ava's dad's wake and, yeah, really that like very like touching mm-hmm. moment between them so just uh, i think overall really satisfying television a lot of heart I, I think there's some really funny moments i love the interplay of um jimmy uh played by paul w downs and his assistant um oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> who is it it's uh what's her name Kayla, mm-hmm. played by megan stalter uh especially in the final episode oh man their interplay is so funny but um yeah i think there's a lot to love about this show any any particular like dynamic scenes things that stood out to you that you really loved episodes just a, a lot of other down the line excellent casting Christa christopher mcdonald as the head of the casino excellent yeah. caitlin, caitlin olsen as uh deborah's adult daughter really mm-hmm. great i uh, love to see that from uh caitlin olsen just doing different kinds of work, even though it's very similar to uh, D awesome. from Sunny at the end of the day. Uh, I like Poppy Lou as Kiki as well. Uh, just mm-hmm. There's just lots of nice little presences that pop up. Even, as you mentioned, uh, Paul W. Downs and uh, 
Megan Stalter. There's just lots of great parts of the ensemble that you have to imagine are going to feel even more paid off in the second season because it's going to keep building this up and it's going to be satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that they've uh, you know brought it on for a second season. Um, definitely a show that we recommend to anybody. And it's funny because I think after the first two episodes, we were like, you know, there's some promise here. And to see where it really came along, I'm trying to think maybe what episode was the turning point. You know, maybe it was, uh, unfortunately, the, the one where um, Ava has that like crazy night with that guy and he ends yeah. up taking episode his own life. Five, I think it is. Yeah. But I think really after that, you know, her commitment to to Deborah and also, you know, Deborah's relationship with her seems to take a turn. I think that's when mm-hmm. um, things really hit their stride for me. So definitely check this out. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about season two whenever it comes out. But Dave, let's stay on HBO and uh, let's talk about In the Heights, the former, I guess, and probably still is a uh, theater play brought to the big screen adapted and uh in the heights most known for being lin-manuel miranda's you know first i think big hit in the Mm -hmm. city um even though it wasn't solely written by him i think he had a collaborator on this uh yeah he did um chiara allegria hudes wrote the book that the play became based on but lin did all the all the music Mm-hmm. And you can tell because there's a lot of uh, Hamilton DNA in terms of the melody and the rhythms that would feel familiar to anyone who's heard Hamilton. Yeah. And I, I think uh, he also starred in this originally. So where Anthony Ramos That's plays right. the main role um, of Uns- Usnavi. Yeah. Um, Great which, name origin, by the way. So funny. hilarious. Um, <laughs> but uh, he so he played Usnavi in the theater ad- adaptation, at least the first mm-hmm. um he did, yeah. And Ramos eventually joined, I believe, as uh, the younger dude's younger dude role once the play had been going on. So uh, Ramos has quite the history with Lynn, which makes sense how he became obviously the original Lauren slash Philip Hamilton for yes Hamilton as well. So the, we're in the we're in the Lynn uh, extended universe. This is a, <laughs> a film adaptation of the musical that's been in the works for a while. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed to once they attached John Jew, fresh off Crazy Rich Asians to this, it really uh, came together for at Warner Brothers. And this was supposed to come out last summer. They held it. Here we are now, day and date on HBO Max, as well as a the theater. It's kind of the first new movie of the real box office comeback in 2021 that has disappointed at the box office. Because we've seen all the other HBO Max releases do pretty well. Kong, Mortal Kombat, Conjuring 3. But In the Heights, of all movies, is the one that seems to have disappointed. Which I find very unfortunate because I think In the Heights is really awesome. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to like think about. Because when you think about some of the like big musicals you know, that are uh, most well known, you know, names like Greece might come to mind or I, I guess like what are other like Chicago yeah Chicago is a really good example Hairspray Mamma Mia actually I don't think I've seen Hairspray all the way through I haven't but <laughs> Mamma Mia also really good but 
you think about those and, and it feels like, you know, it, it's a lot to live up to. Those are really well-regarded movies. Some of them are, are considered classics. And I think In the Heights, at, in moments, really get, gets there. Like, I don't think it's a perfect movie. You know, obviously with a lot of these uh, stage-to-screen adaptations, they're a little long. This definitely feels a little long. And I think there's certain storylines that could have been cut down a bit, maybe felt like it dragged a little bit more when it was following certain characters and, as opposed to others. But the music in this, the production design, the colors, the uh, costume and makeup, yeah. I think is all really impressive. And um, John Chu, you know, after Crazy Rich Asians fame, feels like, you know, one of those directors that his stock should only be rising from this. And I'm, I hope that people take uh, the box office just for what it is, which is probably like, uh, you know, it's still COVID. Um, people are still just getting used to going back to movie theaters and musicals seem to trend with the older audience and older audiences haven't been going back as much. Also musicals at the box office is historically a mixed bag. And also the most successful musicals of late, the box office were released in the fall and winter, such as uh, the greatest showman, which became a really unlikely smash hit at the end of the day. Yeah. Still disappointing result given the Hamilton uh, mega success on Disney plus just last year. Um, so we'll see how the legs are for this kind of movie. I, you have to imagine it'll stick around for a bit, but um, you know, it seems everyone who's seeing it is is a big fan of it. And like you said, John Chu uh, is is quite uh, in demand. He will be making the uh, Wicked film adaptation for Universal next, so he's uh going after it. But like his direction, really, I think elevates the, this 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 movie because it, it feels like a movie, you know, and like. I think that 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 can be an easy sin for a stage adaptation is if you don't make it feel cinematic and try and uh, elevate it, you know, with more uh, production design that you have at your disposal as a film as opposed to just something on stage. Yeah, no, I I agree, and I think it definitely does feel like a movie. Um, you know, it, it, even if you look at the uh, the picture that I have behind me or the picture Dave has behind him, um, you know, you can see that there's like choreography going on obviously but it doesn't feel like people are like just coming running onto the stage from off stage it feels like a it really feels like washington heights at points and it looks like it too at certain points which i think is really uh impressive because um i think one of the things they get across in this pretty well is that washington heights at times can be a you know a, a challenging area um for some people you know i not not saying it's like a battery but i know that um it definitely has a lower socioeconomic status, at least mm-hmm. than a lot of parts of New York City. Um, and it's very poor, you know, for uh, uh, lack of a better way of saying it. So I think when you have that going on, it's easy to kind of make this place feel like really dingy or, you know, not so bright. But what they really lean into is the culture of it all, which I think is the part that really makes this movie thrive is that they bring about the vibrance of these immigrants who have come to the United States looking for an opportunity, looking to make their lives better in some way. Um, and it, I think having the families, you know, the, the different generations that came to America looking for the opportunity and the younger generations that are dreaming of leaving to go and find opportunity elsewhere is a really nice juxtaposition and it's all kind of in this like multicolored um, 
you know, uh, setting, which is just mm-hmm. really captivating. And um, I found Anthony, Anthony Ramos, obviously, and um, I believe he, it was Leslie Grace, right? Who as Nina? Yeah, as, ne- as Nina. Those two, their their chemistry. They were the two together, right? I'm oh no, like I'm getting uh, confused. It's Vanessa Melissa yes. Barrera Sorry. as Vanessa and uh, Ramos as a Usnavi. That's the pair. Yes. Then you have. Corey Hawkins, Benny, and Leslie Grace's Nina. Those Nina, are the two yes. couples. Thank you. I found Anthony Ramos and Melissa Barrera together to be totally captivating on screen. I thought their chemistry mm-hmm. just jumped off. What did you think about them? Yeah, I, I thought they were great. Ramos in particular stands out because this is him really getting that star turn. Obviously been in the Lynn orbit, been in the Hamilton orbit for some time. Small role in A Star is Born, but he hasn't had that big thing. But now you have this. And right now he's filming the Transformers, new Transformers movie. Mm. He's the lead alongside Dominique Fishback. Very exciting. And Ramos just has a natural charisma uh, to his presence. And he has that kind of star power. And Melissa Barrera, who has had a longer career, I believe, down in Mexico, but has been in Hollywood more recently. Another person who seems like she should definitely have a lot more doors open now because it was another great turn from her. Easy charisma. I uh, really like them. Chemistry is really strong. And, you know, just speaking of like what you said about like Washington Heights. And I think what what is interesting about this adaptation of the film is, you know, the play is written in a musical came out like 08, right? And then cleaned up at the Tonys a long time ago. And so there's some tweaks to the story because you're making the movie now. And one of the I think interesting comments from Chu is that they're, they're not like talking about like gentrification as like some like threat to Washington Heights. It's already accepted that gentrification is happening and pushing people out of the Heights. Mm-hmm. Hence why the salon owners are moving to the BX, right? Because right. it's, it's just happening, right? Like the last vestiges of affordability in Manhattan is already gone. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. So I, I liked how like they, they tweak it here and there. You may have the uh, DACA coming up uh, yeah. as like a plot here. I don't know if that subplot felt as uh completely uh colored into me felt a little thin mm-hmm. um i agree still still a way to modernize it you know i get it like you have some subplots here but i think probably the most compelling stuff is just the your romance is particularly usnavi and uh vanessa vanessa yeah and you know any play by Corey hawkins like you mentioned and nina by leslie grace well, I really liked those two characters apart. I think when it was following their romance, I felt a little bit less interested. And, you know, I think that kind of culminates in the um, scene near the end. I forgot which song it was, but where they do like the yes. dancing on the side of the buildings. And mm-hmm. that just felt a little bit like tiring to me. And I just wanted to like have that almost yeah. be over with. It was just kind of the, the tension between the two as a relationship or potential yeah. relationship just felt a little uneven to me. I actually kind of felt that way about Usnavi and Vanessa. It's like, at least their tension is like, oh, well, they're, they're moving in different directions. They just can't be together. Like physically, they will not be in the same place. Right. But like Ben, <laughs> Benny and Nina, it's just like, it's like, all right, well, if she's staying, then you're good. If he's not, then you're not, I don't know. Like what's yeah. like, th- like the other thing too, is I, I think another kind of like more modern, modern, update in the heights is having how they kind of like frame uh nina coming back and how she doesn't feel welcome in this Mm -hmm. very affluent white place that is stanford university and 
she wants to wants to leave just doesn't feel at home there and then you have all everyone else in the heights who's like no no you're the one who made it out you need to do this so you can have a better life and like for me it just felt like it lacked a little tension because it's just an obvious result like now she'll go back she'll uh she'll stick stick it out and find her purpose right and she'll uh make herself better than uh maybe unfortunate circumstances where she's going to school Mm -hmm. like it just kind of lacked a little tension for me because I kind of saw that part coming. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. Like Nina and Benny, like they're this, the side, the side couple at the end of the yeah. day, you know, they, it, it does feel like that. And I think the chemistry between them also just didn't really like crackle the same way uh, Ramos and Barrera did. But, you know, even moving off that, I, I felt like some of the songs I liked the most were, not necessarily around the romance. Like I thought the I agree. Uh, the song in the the styling salon, the hair salon was really fantastic and just vibrant. I liked the little touch of the like wigs dancing in the background. Oh, yeah. at point. <laughs> but that was great. I liked the one where they were going out to the nightclub. I thought that was great. And I think by far the, the at least like choreography that stood out the most to me was the pool. Like I thought yeah. the pool was 96,000. Like, yes. Uh, and great, great song. Um, I don't know, just really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Any other songs that stood out to you? There's a great article on Vulture about how they filmed the pool scene, which is at the Highbridge pool in the Bronx. It was over three days right before they had opened the pool to the public, but right after they had put water in. And a lot of interesting rules about how they got that. You cannot use drones in New York City. So getting those high camera shots were more challenging than they normally would be. A lot of interesting tidbits in there about how they pulled that off. But yeah, I mean, in terms of set pieces, right? Just mm. crazy choreography in the water, underwater, tons of extras. And it's a great song on top of that. Yeah. you know. And so Sonny, I, uh, the kid uh, played by Gregory yeah. Diaz, the fourth, was just really great in that. Yeah, um, so that awesome was a great scene. moment. I also really like the opening number in the Heights. Another awesome yeah. set piece, you know, a little reminiscent of the opening uh, number for Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton. There's a lot of similar DNA in terms of how the ensemble uh, interplays and how like your central character is kind of m- moving around. People are coming into and out of his orbit. Very, very familiar vibes to me. But I think it's a really effective way to set, get the movie going. I agree. Um, and, you know, I I also really enjoyed just the ending. I thought that it was a really strong ending. Definitely emotional. I think definitely drives home what they want to uh, want you to come away with from the movie about uh, like staying in your community, working to make it better, investing in you know the people around you is just really um, really a nice message. And I, I'm also seeing here as I'm looking through the um, the Spotify uh, you know release of the the songs. Um, I guess this might be this might be from the Broadway. I don't think they've released the movie one yet, but um, obviously, like Christopher Jackson, he plays the uh, ice cream man, and uh, you know, Lin Manuel Miranda plays the uh, ice scraper yeah. guy. I don't even know uh, what they're called. Piagua. I forget how you say it. Yeah, like there's like the shaved ice, like kind of snow cone. Yeah, but you you see like that Hamilton, like mm-hmm. those touches throughout. Right. Like uh, Jimmy Jimmy Smith at one point is on hold, and you can hear the King George song going on. Yeah, he'll like be back. Things yeah. like that. So. So, so Chris Jackson actually was the original Benny for In the Heights oh, as well. So gotcha. there's actually like double DNA there as well. Love um, that. 
also like in the very beginning you had the kid marrow doing some like radio uh okay. voiceover nice little touch there uh <laughs> there was one moment where um the young kid uh, part of the song like says you and like he mimics the like dance for soldier boy and i wonder mm. if that w- was always in the play because obviously the play came out right after crank that or if that was a new choice for the film i haven't seen the musical so i can't speak to that but that, i know i noticed it <laughs> yeah. um i i also should want to shout out uh uh paciencia y fe which is the big number for uh abuela where she like basically tells you about her whole journey coming from i believe uh cuba to nyc and just another really beautiful beautiful number and really transporting i think the movie does a great job of elevating a scene like that where you can't pull something like that off on stage but like to actually like put her in the subway and like throw her back in time and this is a really moving number and um the woman who played her also was the original abuela from the musical oh that's great um you know i i gotta say i just found this to be a really like fun watch again it's a little long at times it lulls but overall i think if if you have access to this uh, whether you're going to the movie if you can see the movie theater i bet the movie theater experience is a lot better than oh, the experience exactly. i had on, on the my sound the big arc. screen yeah the colors i mean everything is probably amazing so if you feel comfortable going and, and can do so i'd recommend it um you know i i think like the one thing I'm really left with is, or I guess one last piece on this, Mark Anthony, not looking great. And maybe that's for this role, but he was looking real skinny. I, th- I was a little, little concerned about him. Wait, wait, who was he? He played, um, was it uh, Usnavi's father? You know, uh, when he goes to see him and he like has that conversation about. Didn't he recognize him? Yeah, he plays. Um, oh, I know. Or is it the lawyer dude? Is that? It? No, it's Usnavi's father. Oh, yeah. I, I um, missed that. Yeah. yeah, the the um lawyer was somebody too. I couldn't place him. He was one of the, he was the back guy for sure for me. Right. Um, but you know, there's a you mentioned it earlier or at least alluded to it. Uh, a lot of musicals out this year. We have Dear Evan Hansen coming out. Mm-hmm. We have um, West Side, West Side Story. Story. Re Redux by Spielberg. Why so many musicals all of a sudden? Probably Hamilton. <laughs> Yeah, but like, but you know, <laughs> good point. It, it, it feels a little soon to get the Dear Evan Hansen filmed adaptation, right? Dear Evan that Hansen had to be already planned. Yeah, but like, right. it, still, like that, that that musical is only what five years old or something. It's relatively new. Like I said, John Chu's adapting Wicked. Wicked's a lot older, you know, in the Heights, a lot older. So I have to imagine for Dear Evan Hansen, they probably were like, if we don't do it now, Ben Platt's really gonna look not like a high yeah. schooler. So I feel like you gotta get that done. Um, yeah, in you terms, know, it's just go ahead. In terms of in the heights, I think in terms of like length, right? It's two and a half hours. It's long, and I don't know if I want to like suggest cutting any numbers. I believe some numbers were already cut, but if there's one thing I would have tweaked, I think the narration between uh, mm. Usnavi to those kids on the beach yeah. then by the end you realize it's not actually at the beach i don't know if that was completely necessary probably a little handholdy for the audience i, I agree know, like, i guess it's a way to get like these cute kids there and at the end you're like oh yeah they, so they are cute kids a, they had a kid honestly um the little girl who plays usnavi vanessa's daughter looks like the little sister of ramos or the daughter of ramos like they definitely she definitely looked 
Uh, yeah, like, great like, like the kid. Well done. Um, <laughs> also, just really happy for Corey Hawkins. You know, obviously, I think a lot of people have been really in on Corey Hawkins since Straight Outta Compton, and he's had some moments on stage, on TV, some smaller movie roles. But this um, that was like a really meaty part, and I, I didn't know he had this in him. You mm-hmm. know, in terms of being a song and dance guy as well. So I hope this leads to a bigger opportunities for him as well. You know who else? Um, I guess two two people in this that were really surprising to me. First, uh, Stephanie Beatrice Bischoff. Um, I can't even say this last name. Uh, Alvizuri. I, I might have butchered that. But she plays... Um, she's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, yeah, she's one of the salon. Diaz. Yeah. yeah. She's great. And unrecognizable at first. And I was like, wait, I think... Mm-hmm. From Brooklyn Nine Nine, great, great for her. Jimmy Schmitz, oh, of course, could do this. I mean, he's great, but I guess he wasn't really singing. He was kind of like Pierce Bros- Brosnan in uh, Mamma Mia, where he just kind sure. of was like talk singing. But you know, it was, it was great to see Jimmy Schmitz like uh, tearing it up mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah, I liked it. I liked him yeah. a lot. He's uh, been a little inactive, you know, po- post West Wing, just cashing some Star Wars checks randomly. You know, it's he hasn't been doing it too much. So nice to see him. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, why don't we uh, wrap it up there? What uh, what do we have for next week, Dave? Uh, yeah. So we have a few things. I think most notable is probably the new Pixar film, which will be premiering on Disney Plus. Luca, uh, not Donchis, just Luca. We also have the second album from Gold Link, which I'm really excited for. And we'll be talking about a uh, Lupin Part Two on Netflix, which is already out. Lupin. And also, also um. Dave season two on FX, the little Dickie show is premiering. We might talk about that at some point. So get that on your radar as well. All right. SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod, and at NostalgiaPod on Twitter. We'll see you next week. Yeah.